0: snuggling going on this morning in here I want to commend you because you were brave enough to get on the roads you know and and get here and then you were brave enough to walk into the auditorium and stay that that took a lot of courage I heard Randy say yeah we're we're blowing a really nice constant 56 degrees so uh, not sure exactly what happened but uh, we're thankful that that it's a first world problem right there are places in the world that are that have have already worshiped today or people that have that will be worshiping and their their circumstances are certainly much more difficult than our own Uh, so we'll we'll take a a few inconveniences to be able to gather and to uh, spend time together in the word of god i'm finishing today this series we've been doing for a while. Uh, believing god stories of faith from the old testament so let me just ask you when you think of the old testament stories because we've gone through some and what i've tried to do is pick maybe a few stories that wouldn't be the the very first ones that would come to our minds Um, so let me just ask you when you think of the stories of the old testament which one is the first that comes to your mind as a powerful old testament story What's the first story that comes to your mind? Moses. Was that? Some Moses, another Moses. Anybody else? Joseph, David and Goliath, Elijah, creation. You know, there's so many of these different things that come to our mind. Uh, the story that would have come to the people of israel's mind and certainly the story that would have been the story that that the the first century jews the disciples of jesus jesus himself the story that would have come to their mind was the exodus it would have been the uh the, the pinnacle of the power of god and the stories of god not to not to set aside the other stories from the old testament of of god's work to redeem and to rescue time and time again, to provide. But the story that was the defining moment, as we'll look at at the end of our time together today, the gospel of the Old Testament is the Exodus. It's the decisive act of God on behalf of his people to rescue them, to redeem them to give them a new identity and a new place in creation in the world, wearing his name, living as his people, and fulfilling his purposes. It's the decisive act. As I uh, read through the Exodus uh, passage in, in, in the book of Exodus this week, I read through it several times and thought, wow, there's, there's so much in this story of Exodus really in many ways this story could be a series there is so much that is packed within it Uh, we could spend weeks talking about some of the different things we won't spend weeks this morning Uh, we will spend some time I want to try to give an overview and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time on some aspects of the story that perhaps we don't pay quite as much attention to and then I want to tie it together at the end with at least one connection that it has with uh, a New Testament passage. So Exodus, from, from what we know of the story, in the very beginning of, of the book of Exodus, uh, we're told that as Genesis has been completed in the story of really the patriarchs, the story of creation, the story of God's love for the world, he creates as Father, Son, Spirit, he creates a good creation, the fall of man, the rebellion of humanity, sinning against him the brokenness the fallenness the curse of the world and and from genesis 3 on god is redeeming uh, this the song that we sung uh, earlier together only by grace can we enter only by grace can we stand that goes all the way back to genesis chapter 3 when god gets busy to redeem and rescue his people he will not let sin have the final word he will not let death have the final word so he breaks in and so we have Uh, Noah, of course but we have abraham and isaac and jacob the patriarchs the 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 promise of blessing for the whole world not just for abraham and his descendants but for the whole world way bigger plan than than simply blessing israel of course jacob has his sons Uh, one of those sons joseph is the one that the brothers are jealous of they take him and they sell him into slavery he ends up in egypt he ends up in a place of prominence because of the sovereignty of god god's work to to elevate joseph and to put him in a place that through joseph he's blessing and saving the world he's saving israel he's saving his people from famine he saves not only egypt but israel and so Israel, Jacob and all of his sons, had migrated from Canaan down into Egypt, and they'd been there. Exodus tells us that after a while, a pharaoh came along. The, the pharaoh had elevated Joseph to basically the vice president position, the vice pharaoh. But a pharaoh came along who no longer knew Joseph and the story of Joseph and the story of where these Hebrews had come from. And so oppression sets in, and the pharaoh made Israel all the Hebrews, slaves of Egypt. And this happens for hundreds of years, and it has become, for the people of God, this new identity for them. They have a slave identity. They cry out to God in their misery as uh, Egypt turns up the heat on their suffering and their oppression. And when they cry out, God hears... He had already been at work to save, to rescue, and to prepare a leader for them, Moses. who had been raised in Pharaoh's house, but then had been cast away in exile, run away in exile because of him defending his people. God is now bringing him back to Egypt, the very place he had been raised, and the place that he had run away from, and he's brought him back to Egypt to lead the people out of Egypt. So he's going to use someone who can't really speak very well, who hasn't been in a prominent place of leadership. He's been shepherding sheep for 40 years, and now he's brought Moses back to lead the people out of Egypt. He says, I've heard their cry. Their cry has come before me, and and it's time for me to rescue them, and I'm going to use you. So Moses comes back. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't want to let the people go. He refuses, and so the power of God then begins to be displayed through a series of plagues. The plagues that begin in chapter 7 and run through the end of chapter 10 are plagues that only affect the Egyptians but have no effect on the Hebrews, on the people of Israel. And so God is demonstrating his love for it, his protection and his provision and his power over Israel while at the same time he is unleashing the, the suffering into Egypt so that Pharaoh will eventually let the people go. That's the plan of God. At the same time, every single one of the plagues is a way for for Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, it's at the same time a way for Yahweh to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the Lord over all creation. So when there's blood and there's hail and there are locusts and there are frogs and there are flies and gnats and darkness... When, when all of this is taking place, God is showing Israel and Egypt that He's in charge of the whole world. These gods and goddesses might have been of Egypt, might have been in charge of certain aspects of creation, so they would believe. But the Lord is demonstrating that He's in charge of all of it. Uh, he may be a foreign god to the Egyptians but he is the God of the universe. And this God has come to let his people go. He is acting on behalf of them. Exodus chapter 11 then begins with the, the final plague, plague number 10, and that plague is the death of the firstborn. Uh, Pharaoh was considered to be a son of God in Egyptian religion. And um, any time that the firstborn children were given to pharaoh then they also took on this aura of being divine and god is once again demonstrating that he's in charge so this plague is what finally sets off pharaoh humbles him to the point where he says okay i'm going to let israel go so he summons moses and tells him i want you to leave just leave and we come to exodus chapter 12 which is a major piece of this story, and it's the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. God is the one who initiates this Passover. He's the one who's telling Moses, this is how, this is how we're, I'm going to do this. But he's calling on the participation of the people. This is not just some kind of passive thing that the people are just going to just be whisked away by angels up out of Egypt and into this new land. They're going to have to participate in the work of God and in the action of God by faith. And the faith is beginning here with this Passover. So the firstborn uh, will be spared for Israel. Whereas the death of the firstborn is going to come on Egypt and all other people around them, God is going to spare the firstborn sons and animals of Israel and this is how he's going to do it. I want you to take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb. I want you to take it on day 10 and I want you to put it in your home and I want you to keep it for four days. On the 14th day, I want you to sacrifice this lamb. I want you to slaughter the lamb and you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to take the blood and put it on the door frame and the side posts of your doors. And so when we go to uh, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The judgment isn't just on Pharaoh. The judgment is on the gods of Egypt. This is a cosmic display of the power of God. Not just for Pharaoh, not just for his followers. This is a cosmic display. God is in charge of all of it. And the gods of Egypt are on trial, not just Pharaoh himself and the oppressive military. He says, then, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This phrase, the, the blood will be a sign for you. So the blood of this slaughtered lamb, this lamb that they're caring for for several days before they slaughter it, is, is not some kind of meat offering to an insatiable appetite of this divine being who's far and distant from the people. This blood is a sign of, It's a way for them to remember. And what do signs do? Signs point beyond themselves. The sign is never the point. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, gets a picture made by the sign, and then leaves, they go to see the Grand Canyon. The sign tells us something else beyond itself. And so the blood here is a sign that's pointing to something else. It's pointing them to God, It's pointing them to the provision. There's been a substitute. So their firstborn is not going to be taken by God. And here's a lamb that is slaughtered, the blood of which now becomes a rescuing symbol and sign for the people. It's no accident, of course, that blood is what God chooses because it's blood that has the life. And so this is this is something that is talked about throughout the Old Testament, even to, into the New Testament, the book of Hebrews even will reiterate this later on but the blood is where the life is and so God is seeing this and he says when I see the blood I will pass over you so it's of course called Passover and a a part of this is the feast of unleavened bread when you put the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread together this was this was what he said is going to become a, a festival so that when you celebrate this every year this is the beginning of your year he rewrites the calendar with this event so imagine, they've already got a calendar that's been operating by, and now God says, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop the way that you've been organizing and celebrating in your lives, and we're going to do this by this very act. This is going to be for you the new year. This is where God steps in. And so every year they celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, of course, for us Christians, those of us who follow Christ know that this passover and this unleavened bread becomes for us the basis of what we've just celebrated a few moments ago together the lord's supper so exodus then is 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 beginning here with the passover so during the night this is exactly what happens he goes through and the firstborn of egypt sons animals are put to death those of Israel are kept alive as Israel is getting ready then now to, to leave Egypt God tells them I want you to do something I want you to ask your Egyptian neighbors for their gold and silver and their articles of clothing I want you to ask that so without fighting any battle the people are plundering the Egyptians God has made the Egyptians predisposed to the Israelites they have instead of seeing the Israelites as people they're ready to kick out of their country they are seeing them as somebody who's favored and they're giving them what they would give to people who are in a place of royalty and they're giving them their gold and they're giving them their silver as people who are favored and so they're going to plunder the Egyptians they're going to leave as people who are not slaves but who are in fact, people of the king. Those who are loved and favored and governed by Pharaoh himself. And yet it is God himself who's favoring them and they leave as rich people, even though they've been the slaves, they've been the have nots, but now they're becoming the haves. And God tells them, when when you do this, I want you to consecrate your firstborn, your firstborn sons to me. I want you to consecrate your firstborn animals. And he says in chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, on that day, there's a reason for for this. There's a reason for this Passover. There's a reason for this uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there's a reason that you're consecrating your firstborn to me. He says, on that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. I do do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observant will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. It is that act of celebration and remembrance. And and even today, this is the basis for us of, of our celebrations around a table, Our celebrations at at Christmas, our celebrations at Easter, our celebrations Sunday after Sunday, our celebrations when we sing songs together. I do this because of what the Lord did for me. This becomes the basis for the way that we live, the way that we share life with each other, the way that we share life with the world. I do this because of what the Lord did for me. If you're ever searching for a reason why you do what you do when someone... Who does not know God asks you or when someone who is younger asks you here is a great answer I do this because of what the Lord did for me why do you have a homeless shelter we do this because of what the Lord has done for us why do you why do you keep yourself in in calm in a place of peace how are you happy when all around you is in your life is is going so badly when you get a bad report from the doctor when when you lose your job or you get demoted or your finances change or something something happens, you have an accident and you have an illness and all this stuff, how do you stay peaceful well, I'm able to do this because of what the Lord did for me? This becomes the basis for the people of Israel. And so God has them ready to cross and at the end of chapter 13, this is exactly what they're doing. And, and one of the things about this story that I think is, is, is oftentimes one of those things we just kind of read past is that at the end of the chapter God says I'm not going to take them the easy way the north through uh, Philistine the Philistines because if they get there they may get discouraged they may see the enemies and then they may lose heart so I'm going to take them around a different way now it's the long way it's the inconvenient way but I think it's powerful to see that God is being prudent, he's being wise, he's being loving, he's being thoughtful. He's actually doing them a favor by taking them the long way. And what he'll do is, I'm going to lead you by cloud, the pillar of cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night. I'll never leave you. I'm going to stay right in front of you. You will always know exactly where to go. And I'm going to lead you the long way so that you won't lose heart. It's difficult enough to leave behind the only life you've ever known. All you've known is slavery. It's difficult enough to leave behind the life, the only life you've ever known, this life of slavery, the life of bondage, to become a free people. That's tough. Yahweh wants to give them every opportunity to live powerfully in their new life. He's so gracious. He's just gracious like that. I don't want you to lose heart along the way, so I'm going to take you this way, and I'll be in front of you the the entire time. But eventually the the Egyptians regret letting the people go, and they set out in hot pursuit with, with a drove of chariots, 600 of them, horses. They've got the best, and then to throw it in, the rest of the army's coming in behind the chariots. And when the people who have gone now to the Red Sea look behind them and they hear the rumble of the chariots, they begin to cry out. And in chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, it says that as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. The very same kind of expression that you get earlier in the book of Exodus when they're, when they're being oppressed and they're suffering and they cry out to the Lord. And they cry out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the deserts quickly we forget okay so from this little speech what's missing what's missing from this speech what's missing when they cry out like this it says they cried out to the lord but who are they talking to talking to moses crying out to the Lord, ah, what have you done to us? They turn away from the Lord and they turn to Moses and they begin to cry out to Moses and they don't address Yahweh at all. They just address Moses. Even with the plagues that they have seen, God touch the Egyptians with and spare them from even with the plunder that God has favored them with from the Egyptians, they're afraid, and they cry out, and they wonder, what are we going to do now? They begin to look back on Egypt in a way that over-glamorizes Egypt. Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay there? Oh, and they're not done with this yet. They're going to be doing this even more so as they travel through the wilderness for a little while. Oh, we remember those those days back in Egypt when we had plenty of good food oh boy if we just had some meat back in Egypt we had fish back in Egypt we could eat leeks and onions and garlic oh it was good you know breast stunk all the time but they were over glamorizing what they had experienced in Egypt this is what we do we, when we're in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the oppression, in the middle of the suffering, we cry out to God, then we look more at our circumstances than we do to God himself. So we cry out, we look at other people, we blame, we go, ah, what's going on here? And instead of turning ourselves to the Lord, to the one who has already been at work to deliver us from how many things? He's already done so many things to set us free, and yet in this moment we just turn and we do the same thing. There is a longing for freedom. There is a crying out for victory. But when the difficulty and the dis- discomfort comes and the fear sets in, we might find ourselves wishing we'd never thought about leaving the old life. That's what happens to us sometimes. Um, the time that I, sp- I spend and celebrate recovery, not only for myself, but with others and community, it's one of the big things that we face when, we're, when we are looking at the way that life has been and we're looking at the difficulty, we're looking at addictions and habits, we're looking at all these kinds of behaviors that have just pulled us down and pulled other people down, our family, friends, and we look at those things and we go, oh, I wanna get out of this so much. And, and oftentimes what can happen is even a husband and a wife can be in a really difficult place for a long time. Let's just say that, that the husband has been uh, abusing alcohol for years. And, and the wife has been calling out to God and praying to the Lord, please deliver my husband, please deliver us, please deliver our children, please deliver my husband from this addiction, and calling out for year after year after year after year, and then the exodus begins. And there's a step towards a different kind of life, a new life, a life of freedom, and it is difficult. It is so hard that when the, the initial steps are taken, to go and to move into freedom and away from addiction, that sometimes that same spouse who's called out for 10 years or more, five years, five months, and has called out to God gets mad, gets angry, and turns to the husband in this example and says, what do you think you're doing? You think you could just all of a sudden start changing? And there's something deep inside that says, wait a minute, I've got life figured out like this. I've figured out how to do the drama. I have figured out how to do the dysfunction, and now I don't know what life is going to be like in the dysfunction. Now you're wanting to confess, and you're wanting to get real, and you're wanting to be authentic, and you're wanting to change some things, but I don't know what I'm going to do if I have to change things. I've been, I have figured out how to do this mess and to work through this suffering. I'm not sure if I really want to do this. And on the other hand, the alcoholic husband in this case might look back and go, I tell you what, it was life was a lot easier. I hated being in that spot, but it sure is easier than dealing with this. It's it's more it's it's easier for me to go back. I mean, that was my habit. I can go back to that, whatever that habit might be. And we can find ourselves in the very same spot, looking at the difficulty, looking at the discomfort, and going, maybe I should just go back. Maybe it just be easier. Yeah, I might die, but it it'd be a lot easier for me just to go back into the life I've always known or for the life that I've known for the last 10 or 20 years, it'd be easier for me to just go back there and stay there than to have to do the day-to-day surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit of God and to truth. That's harder. The conversations towards function and away from dysfunction, that's a lot harder. I think you understand what I'm talking about, don't you? We, we've got our own issues, our own messes and sometimes we can get so settled in Egypt that as God begins to help break us free from whatever that is, the bitterness that we've protected like Gollum protected that precious ring in the Lord of the Rings we just, we call it our precious and we, oh that bitterness I don't want it but I've learned how to I've learned how to hang on to it Uh, the, the anger the substance the habits, whatever they are. And it's difficult. So what, what happens when we assess, as you assess your own circumstances now, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see a place where you've come and you go, I don't know if I can go any farther, plus the army's coming after me? Does your vision and does your assessment of your current reality include the Lord because theirs didn't their assessment and their vision of what was happening did not include the Lord and his vision for them there's not any thought about what might the Lord be up to in this what might God want to do in this instead they're looking at their current reality and their current reality has become their reality more so than the reality of God and so instead of looking at what might God want to do in this They're looking at Egypt. They're looking at Moses. They're blaming. They're complaining. They're wishing they could just go back. It's tough. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Yahweh will fight for you. Do you not think he wants to see you through this? He has spared you from every plague. He has spared you from the the plague, especially of the firstborn. He's brought you out. He's plundered the Egyptians in the process. He's given you so much. He's keeping his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Do you not think he will see you through? Do you think the Red Sea is the final answer? Do you think the Egyptian army is the final answer? word here the Lord will fight for you and the and the phrase there be still doesn't mean this it means be quiet just be quiet stop stop complaining stop talking stop looking to Moses stop just be quiet rest and let the let God do his work stop crying move on keep moving deliverance is coming Walter Brueggemann says this, the faith to which Israel here is summoned is not a faith the world easily believes and is arrived at by common sense. It is, listen to this, it is trust against the evidence, risk in the face of the odds that life can come even in the public domain where Yahweh governs. Trust against the evidence risk against the odds that's what they're being called to they are facing a moment where it does not look like it is possible for them to move forward and if they try to go back they're going to get annihilated it looks as if because the Egyptians don't seem to be anymore they're so angry that they don't seem to be coming to take the people back to Egypt they seem to be coming to just annihilate this is a destruction mission And it's going to take faith against the evidence and risk in the face of the odds to let God do his work in his time, in his way God tells Moses to raise his staff over the sea and Israel will cross on dry ground and so the angel of the Lord keeps the Egyptian army away from Israel all through the night and during the night the, the sea is parted somehow somehow through this miraculous God he's not only parting the sea but you know what if he can part the sea he can take care of the mud and he can make them go across on dry ground so that they're not getting bogged down God takes care of the details as he rescues In 14.29, it says the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Why? Well, when the Egyptians tried to go through on the same path, God swallowed them up with the sea. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. In the song of praise that follows in chapter 15, the people of Israel, led by Moses in this great worship, call Yahweh their mighty warrior. How often do you think of your God, of your Yahweh, of your Lord, as a mighty warrior, a warrior God, who fights for you in the midst of your battle, who is the one leading you who not only desires to lead you out but has the power to carry it through how many times do you think of him as your warrior god as i said in the beginning the exodus is the gospel event of the old testament it is about what god has done who's the hero of this story it's not moses and his stick it's not the people it's not aaron who spoke for moses It's certainly not the people who are complaining and crying, oh boy, I should have gone back to Egypt. The hero of this story is God. It is about what God has done. It is about God's faithfulness to the promises he's made. It's about God's plan. It's about God's love. It's about God's provision. It's about God's power. And it's about God's glory. This is what he said at the beginning. I'm going to do this so that all of Egypt, not just Israel, so all of Egypt will see that I, the Lord, so that Pharaoh will see that I am the Lord. It's not simply the parting the Red Sea, it's Passover. Passover, death. Red Sea crossing, resurrection. Death and resurrection in the same story. This is gospel. God is the hero, the powerful one who has acted on Israel's behalf, doing for them what they could not do for themselves. That's gospel. And see, that's gospel. That's what God has always done. Every single Every single example that we have, every story of faith that we have, it is God who is proactive. God is the initiator. God is the hero. God is doing for them, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God has busted them out of prison, ransacked the enemy, stolen away what the enemy wanted to keep for themselves. The enemy wanted to keep Israel locked up. The enemy wants to keep you locked up. He wants to keep you from moving forward or he wants to discourage you when you get a vision of your circumstances, but he doesn't ever want you, the enemy never wants you to look to the Lord. He doesn't want you to look to your mighty warrior God, he wants you to look at your circumstances because if you'll look at the Red Sea in front of you and the Egyptian army behind you, you'll stop and you'll beg to go back to Egypt. But our hero God has made it possible to redeem and to rescue. And he's not just busting them out of Egypt so that they can wander around in the wilderness forever. Oh, no, they're going to wander for a while because they complain yet again. They have a lack of faith yet again. But he's giving them freedom from slavery, freedom from evil, freedom from oppression, freedom from domination, and he's giving them freedom for rest, worship, covenant, land life mission and purpose and that same exodus god makes possible through jesus christ think about it in romans we spent a little time in romans a while back in romans chapter 3 verse 23 paul i believe throughout his letters, and in particular in Romans, is thinking of the Exodus when he is unpacking what the gospel means for his people that day in the first century and for the 21st century. Listen to this. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It is not we who provide the sacrificial lamb. Far as I know, none of you have ever had a lamb in your home for four days caring for it before you cut its neck, slit its throat. We're not providing the sacrificial lamb. It's not the blood of any lamb. It's the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. It is not we who have lost a firstborn son. In Christ, God has provided the Lamb and the firstborn Son over all creation. He has passed over our sins with the blood of His Son, Jesus. He has set us free and given us the riches. He's given us the riches we haven't earned. He's just given us so much favor that not only does He see the blood of the Lamb and pass over our sins, He he gives us, He plunders the enemies of our lives and makes us rich. The one who was rich For our sakes became poor, so that in Christ we might become rich. Romans chapter 6, thanks be to God. Verse 17, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, a whole different way of life. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God, not the earning of people, but the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has led us out of slavery through the water, not of the Red Sea, but of baptism. Romans 6. The beginning of Romans 6. All of us, all of us who've been baptized into Christ, have been buried with him. We have died with Christ, and just as the Father raised the Son, so He raises us new life. The cleansing, the washing of the water, the destruction of the enemy, being set firmly into a new place. God has brought us out of slavery and bondage, not to a country, but to the power of sin. He, Sin is not just this act, but it's a force, and God breaks the force of sin. He breaks the oppression of sin over us. He redeems us so that sin no longer owns us and controls us like the Egyptians controlled Israel. He sets us free from the oppression, not just an act. Sin no longer has authority. We were slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel would say, but God. And we would say we were slaves of sin, but God. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the firstborn son over all creation that's been given to us. We have been saved and rescued by his blood. We have been set free from slavery to sin and for new life in Christ by the power of God. We have a warrior God who fights for us today, who fought for us in Jesus Christ, who overcame sin and death, overcame the the taskmaster, the slave driver, so that we would live in freedom and it takes faith to be set free it takes faith to live as a people who truly are free Paul would say to the Galatians you're free live as free people don't live as the people who live in Egypt and are owned by the slave driver it is for freedom It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I'd like to uh, invite our prayer teams to take their places. And I would like to invite you to stand. Now, can you see that there is so much in in, in Exodus? Can you see why this story is the gospel of the Old Testament? This kind of reminder, but can you also see that we could we could do a series on this thing? I mean, it's so packed full of meaning. It's so good. Um, so my practice this week was just to read the story over and over, and I can go, oh, that's a great point. Again, I can't say that. Oh, we're gonna have, we don't have time for that. Oh, this is so good. Read this story. Go back into Exodus and read this story and just let the truth of our mighty warrior God. his love and his provision the way that he cares about the details that he has he wants to make every opportunity for us to live as free people he wants to give us every opportunity to live powerfully as the people he sets free in jesus christ but if you have not yet been set free this is an opportunity for you to come and to say, I've been in bondage to sin and bondage to bitterness and bondage to whatever. There are so many things that enslave us. And maybe you need to be set free for the very first time by putting faith in Christ and being baptized, having the water wash you. God wash you through His blood, pass over your sins. But maybe you've been living in Egypt even though you've been set free. Then you've gone back and you need to say, oh, okay, up to now, I've been in Egypt, but from now on, I'm going to live as a free person. So whatever the need is, we invite you as we sing.